Welcome to another episode of the Equip Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Romans chapter 5. Uh, we're looking back a little bit at some of the discussion from Bible study this past week, and normally we would look ahead to this coming week, but we are actually not meeting on Sunday because it's Easter. So we will do all of chapter 6 or uh, selections from chapter 6 when we meet again on April 24th. Um, but I thought it might be useful to do a couple things today. One, to kind of recap the discussion. Uh, but two, I, this was a little bit strategic on my part, but opened up a little bit of a can of worms towards the end of our time um, in dealing with Romans 5 by talking about um, Adam as a historical person. I'll circle back to that in a minute. Um, but let's let's kind of uh, go back and recap just a little bit of the discussion we spent most of our time focusing on the first few verses, 12, 13, 14. That took us back to Genesis for a little bit. We spent some time in Genesis 2 um, to be clear about what exactly was commanded to Adam, what disobedience happened, just to have a better picture of the sin that's involved. Um, we spent some time talking about original sin and the idea of um, how sin would have spread to all people. Uh, because of what Adam did. And we, um, I wish we had developed this a little bit more, but thankfully Duckett got into it in his sermon. But in verse 14, it says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And so we talked a little bit about what typology is or what types are, where they're examples or foreshadowings of future things. And so in the Old Testament, Adam and other figures and events and even institutions have a typological element to them where they're foreshadowing things that find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, there's an excellent book uh, that just came out that goes into more detail about this called Typology. Um, it is worth checking out, although it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a hefty book. Um, <clears throat> there's other resources we could point to as well. So we talked about that. We talked about how Adam and Christ are in parallel. Everyone um, in the a in this age are united to Adam because of sin, uh, but everyone in the age to come uh, that is in the age to come would be united to Christ by faith and experience righteousness and new life. Uh, that led us a little bit down to the end of the section where we in 18, 19, and 20, we see that Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. And we talked about how that doesn't necessarily entail universalism or this idea that everyone will be saved. Um, Paul is using all and many here in um, a more general sense and less of a precise sense like we might want. Because uh, right after he says that in verse 18, in verse 19, he says, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Um, we didn't get too much farther into verse 20. Duckett does a great job in his sermon of emphasizing the importance of the so that in verse 21. And I would encourage you to listen to that if you missed it. We didn't spend as much time talking about 15 16 and 17. Um, I'll confess, we, we had mostly a theological discussion rather than a verse-by-verse -verse, um, breakdown of this passage. And uh, in some ways, that's, that's my fault for not steering the conversation well. Uh, but in other ways, it's because this section in Romans touches on really big-picture ideas and 
raises questions about the nature of sin, the nature of death, and really forces us back into Genesis to be clear on what's going on in those early chapters of Genesis. And that's what kind of led us eventually towards the end for me to bring up um, the problem that we face in our modern culture, where in this passage in particular, Paul seems to be resting a lot on the universality of sin having to do with Adam's sin and that infecting all humanity, every single person. Um, And so it's really significant that Adam is a historical person who acted in space-time, who's not a literary creation or a mythological composite everyman figure that doesn't necessarily represent a single historical individual, especially as he's going to draw parallels between Adam and Christ. And one of the things that we also brought up is um, Adam shows up in the genealogies in uh, Luke and not not in Matthew, I don't think. Um, And so it would be very weird for Luke to have a genealogy that is 99% historical people and then include Adam in there if he's not an actual real historical person. Now, the flip side of that would be we could say, well, Luke and Paul thought that Adam was a real historical person, but we know now that they're mistaken. Uh, And that seems to be a very dangerous road to go down to say that something that they thought was wrong, although at the same time we want to acknowledge there are things that were believed at the time that the Bible was written that we know now are not entirely true. But we get into... um, dangerous territory if we want to uphold the idea of the Bible being the inspired word of God that is true and all that it affirms, if it in fact affirms things that are not in fact true. And so what I brought up towards the end, which opened up all sorts of questions that could be asked about the early chapters of Genesis, but even just um, creation itself, is if the mainstream, and this, this is I'm speaking from here. I'm going to explain just a little bit. The mainstream scientific picture, which is not to say every single scientist, biologist, anthropologist would affirm this, but that the majority would, is that based on multiple lines of evidence, Adam would not be not only not a real historical person, but many people would affirm that it's not actually even biologically possible for a single pair, Adam and Eve, to be the progenitors of all of humanity. Um, One of the things that gets cited quite a bit in the literature is that the human population would have never dipped below several thousand individuals. And at least on a straight, somewhat straightforward reading of Genesis, you have a bottleneck of two individuals with Adam and Eve, and then you have another bottleneck on the other side of the flood with eight individuals with Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And so on certain understandings of the scientific evidence, those stories couldn't be true because from what we know about genetics and how things work in populations, um, it's not possible for there to be a point in time when there was only two people or when there was only eight people in the entire world and yet get to where we are today. Uh, there's a lot of uh, issues around that. There's a lot of debate around that. There's a lot of things you could read. I'm not affirming that so much as describing it to you. Um, and that it's, it's, it is a little bit stronger of a case saying not just that Adam wasn't a real person because evolution, but saying that 
Adam couldn't even be a real person. That's a lot stronger of a denial, but seems to create a lot of problems for this passage in Romans. And so we spent some time talking about ways that you can harmonize the what scripture is teaching and what I think it's teaching, what historically Christians have thought Romans 5 is teaching with um, what may or may not be going on in the history of the earth and the history of humanity. And I say may or may not be going on because uh, one of the things that we talked about is that we don't want to necessarily wed a, our interpretation of scripture to a specific scientific picture. Um, we want to be scientifically literate. We want to understand the reasons behind why uh, people might affirm something like evolution. Um, but we also want to affirm what Christians have believed for centuries relative to the importance of Adam, uh, the creation of the human race as a um, special creation by God and not just something that evolved over time. And so there, there are very important truths to Christian orthodoxy that we don't want to discard just because science says this or science says that. Um, but we also want to, so I guess what I'm getting at is on the one hand, we don't want to just discard the science and say, well, the Bible says blank. And on the other hand, we don't want to be so quick to revise our reading of the Bible because science says blank. Um, but I figured maybe with this historical Adam question, it was a good time to wade into that a little bit, knowing that I could hop on here on the podcast later and bring up some things and uh, point you to some resources and be available myself as a resource. Uh, as much as Ben might be a, a people that know Ben that have been around New City for a while know that Ben is all about the Psalms. Uh, to the degree that Ben is all about the Psalms, I have been all about the early chapters of Genesis for the better part of almost 20 years now in various ways of researching and writing and thinking and trying to make sense of it. And as I was doing some reading yesterday, I was reflecting on it, that the more that I've read Genesis, studied it, read background literature, um, looked into modern science, um, in some ways to me, Genesis has gotten more mysterious, not less in just the way that it tells the story in chapters one through 11. So I say all that to say, I, my views are, I, I don't want to say idiosyncratic, uh, but I also want to say they are tentative and they are um, trying to make sense of things and harmonize things, but also trying to just offer ways that things could be harmonized without committing to a particular view on things. So uh, one of the things that we talked about is there is a way to harmonize um a real atom in space time with a more or less mainstream picture of how humans have come to be, but it still involves God directly creating Adam at a certain point in time as a representative of a group of humans. Uh, one of the things that I noted um, is that if we go back to Genesis one and we look at um, verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And one of the things I noted here is 
traditionally we would assume um, one one way of reading Genesis one and two is that Genesis one is kind of a big picture description of creation, and then Genesis two is kind of zooming in on day six to give more detail. Um, for reasons I won't explain right here, I don't think that's the best way of reading Genesis, regardless of the scientific background, um, because it's it, it seems clear that the way things progress in chapter two does not exactly map onto the day six presented in Genesis one. Um, but one thing that is worth noting is you could have a situation in Genesis 1 where um, God is not creating a single couple at that point in time, but is creating a group of people at that point in time, because it doesn't exactly specify that it is just two people created in Genesis 1. Um, they're not treated as individuals with names. They're treated as humanity as a whole, male and female. If that were the case, it's entirely plausible that God created a group of individuals at a point in time. And then Genesis 2 describes the creation of Adam in particular, who's then put in the garden as the representative of all of humanity at that point in time. And then when Adam sins, his sin is then imputed to all of the existing humans at that point in time, and then would be passed on to every human born after that point in time. Uh, that would also bypass the issue of death, because if God created a group and then an individual and the individual represents the group and everything happens fairly um, close in sequence, uh, no one dies, no one is um, subjected to sin and death until Adam brings the curse of death upon everyone through his sin. I'm not saying that's necessarily what Genesis directly teaches, but I am saying that is a way of harmonizing some of the science with a still fairly straightforward reading of Genesis. It also bypasses issues like what is Cain worried about running into? Um, how does he find a wife so fast? How has human civilization developed so quickly? Um, but at the same time, it does generate other issues. And so one of the things that hopefully came through in our discussion this past week, and would come clear to you as you study more about what may be going on in Genesis, is that there is no view that does not have some type of interpretive issues, whether it's interpreting the science, interpreting Genesis, harmonizing things theologically. Um, every way of making sense of what's going on leaves unanswered questions and also leaves um, almost no major theological idea untouched. And so our, our speculations are tentative and we have certain boundary markers in place. And I think one of those key boundary markers you should hear me saying is that um, Adam is a real historical individual whose sin affects all people. Um, however far back in history Adam might have been, whatever other processes might have been going on, I think Romans 5 is pretty clear and it just leaves us with some questions of how everything worked out. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in studying or discussing this more, uh, it's something I love to discuss. So I would be down to have a discussion about it. If it's something you'd like to study more for yourself, um, please send me an email. Um, I have a bibliography of sources I've worked through. Um, a recent source that I read was, uh, William Lane Craig. He's a really famous Christian philosopher and apologist. He released a book last November, um, called In Search of Historical Adam. 
And there was a whole section of discussion on it at the Evangelical Theological Society National Conference last November. Um, and all sorts of, there was a scientist, philosopher, theologians, everyone interacting with his book. Um, his proposal is that Adam was a real historical person, but was way farther back into the future, into the past, uh, than we would normally expect. But he thinks through how it could be possible that everyone is biologically related to this Adam and Eve figure who are far in the past. And so preserving them as historical individuals, fully human individuals, um, who are, doing everything that Romans 5 needs Adam to do to stand in that parallel relation to Jesus. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, for most people, uh, Craig's book is a little too dense, a little too scholarly, and a little too intimidating to work through. Um, however, because I was at that conference, he actually had a handout that was a single-page summary of his book. And so if, you would, if you're interested, shoot me an email. Um, it'll be, uh, I'll put my email in the show notes and I can send you a copy of that handout. And again, if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me. Um, we keep ending up back in Genesis, but I think it's, it's helpful for making sense of what Paul's doing in Romans. And so um, while we won't meet this coming week, uh, when we do resume, we'll jump into chapter six um, and learn about how Paul is going to teach us more about sanctification, about how growing and... Um, living our new life in Christ works. Uh, and then we'll get into some things with seven and eight as well in, in the coming weeks and months as we, we will continue on with Romans Bible study through the end of May, through the end of this section of, or this series on Romans. So again, looking forward to the next time that we can be together. Um, really have enjoyed our discussions so far. Um, hope that I didn't raise too many questions that don't have answers yet in some of our discussions today, but just thought, uh, we really couldn't talk about the significance of Adam without getting into the fact that um, there are scientific evidence that might suggest Adam wasn't real, but there is not a reason to immediately discard the traditional understanding of um, Adam's role in the, in the history of salvation just because of that. So we'll look forward to our next discussion and hope to see you there. 